This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The development of the COVID-19 vaccines are among the greatest technical achievements of the 21st century. With nearly 8 billion worldwide vaccine doses to date, and nearly 29 million doses administered each day. The world has fought back against the worst pandemic in 100 years. Before COVID-19, the realm of vaccine development had been the exclusive domain of large pharmaceutical firms that could both endure the long, arduous approval process and tolerate the razor-thin margin from each dose given. But the dire threat of COVID-19 demanded the world sit up and immediately invest in the promise of new vaccine technologies. This massive pandemic-induced project has created a vaccine renaissance from which new platforms can develop vaccines within days of sequencing viruses and then rapidly produce and distribute them around the world. This newly appreciated realm of science has many of its roots here in Boston and Cambridge, where an ecosystem of highly specialized scientists compete and collaborate to help combat emerging strains of COVID and bolster the world's defenses against a future unknown deadly pathogen. Could our region become destined to be the Silicon Valley for next generation vaccine technology? And will vaccine innovation be regarded as vital for global health after this pandemic has subsided? My guest today is Dr. Peter Kolchinsky, a doctor in virology, noted author, and founder and managing partner of the investment firm, RA Capital Management. Dr. Kolchinsky has written extensively on the promises of pharmaceutical technologies, and sees the current success of the quickly developed safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines as the culmination of decades of experimentation, investment, and tireless trial and error, which is now bearing fruit for the benefit of mankind. Dr. Kolchinsky will share with us his views on the efficacy of current vaccines and vaccine platforms, the public health considerations for effective booster design, and the promise of this technology to further establish our region as a vital center for medical innovation. When I return, I'll be joined by Dr. Peter Kolchinsky. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by Dr. Peter Kolchinsky, founder and managing partner of the investment firm RA Capital Management and author of The Great American Drug Deal. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Peter. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, in our last conversations, you were wonderful. You were uh, very um, informative about uh, the science behind the, the then new vaccines, uh, the mRNA vaccines. Uh, and now here we are further down the road, about a, a year and a half into the um, uh, epidemic. And now I, I just looked this up, more than 7 billion vaccine doses have been administered worldwide. So we, we know these uh, vaccines have been safe and effective in reducing severe disease and death. Uh, but there seems to be a growing consensus that boosters may be necessary uh, to preserve the efficacy of the initial doses. Let's start there. Um, uh, let's start with the boosters. Uh, what do you think about them? Are they necessary? And why are they necessary? Yeah, so um, I thought that it would be pretty clear you know, very early on that this would be a virus that would stay with us forever uh, and that we would be boosting fairly regularly. And it didn't seem like that big a deal, you know, uh, to imagine a world where like we get annual flu shots, we would eventually mix in a COVID 
uh, booster with a flu shot and get an annual boost um, of our COVID immunity. Um, now, at the time, there were you know, uh, some people who thought, oh, this is going to be a one and done vaccine or the virus will somehow go away on its own. But, it, you know, I'm, I'm a virologist by training. You know, you can look at the common human uh, cold viruses. There are four of them and they circulate uh, and come back every year or two. Right. So you look at that and you think uh, natural immunity is uh, not going to just beat the virus to submission and make it go away. It, you reach an equilibrium with with the virus and it will come back and COVID will be like a fifth uh, virus, uh, but it won't be like the common cold. It'll just be a much more severe infection when you get it. You know, even mild COVID is, you know, not just a cold. It, it's more than that. Um, so, you know, it struck me that as long as we all get booster shots, we can at least make it, uh, you know, like a mild flu or something like that, that we, we might get occasionally, you know, uh, elderly will be at greater risk. They, they respond more weakly to vaccines. Um, you know, but, uh, ultimately if all of us get our boosters, we can help shield through herd immunity, those people that are, might be immunocompromised or, or whatever. Um, now, flu vaccine uptake is at best 50% uh, in, in the population. Older people tend to be better about getting those flu shots. But I honestly figured that, you know, COVID would be, uh, you know, so threatening that, that people would um, be much more likely to get COVID vaccines. And I think that that's been true only sort of. Like, if you were in a place that was already open to vaccines, and maybe in the past you didn't get a flu vaccine because you were too busy and whatever. COVID made you get it. You found the time. You went in and you got it, right? But if you were in a place where, you know, maybe there was a greater hesitancy about vaccines or, or you know, uh, real, um, uh, you know, reservation there, uh, it seems to have really polarized, you know, and, and uh, I, I did not expect the country to be, you know, this split about the value of uh, vaccines. Let's see whether over the coming years, uh, you know, those people that resist vaccines get tired of recurrent COVID infections. I mean, even mild, moderate COVID is not fun. So I, I want to just, we'll, we'll move on from this. I, um, you mentioned it's sort of uh, coming around every uh, two or three years and uh, the need for boosters. Is it because the virus is changing or does is it a function of our, our immunity? Um, you you, you oh. use the analogy of of, you know, uh, the vaccine shows our body what the bad guy looks like. So we're ready when he, when he shows up, which, yeah. which is it? Mm -hmm. It's, it's both. So, uh, we do see that immunity from the vaccine wanes, uh, and that is similar to the natural immunity you would get if you had an infection that too wanes. And you see, uh, with research that was done on common cold viruses relatively recently, because they weren't like really deeply studied, uh, before COVID. Uh, you have to like go and search for literature on common cold viruses. And there were some uh, analyses done of blood samples that had been stored up, you know, over many years looking at, um, you know, how common cold virus strains evolved. And what you realized was, oh yeah, we've got four common cold uh, coronaviruses, um, but they haven't been the same strains, much like COVID has uh, mutated. And we now have Delta and, you know, there's, Epsilon and eventually we'll have Omega, you know, uh, <laughs> we similarly have different strains of each of the four 
uh, we have different variants of each of the four common cold coronaviruses. So those viruses uh, come back slightly different. Um, and so it's probably a combination of waning immunity against you know, a, a given strain um, after you've, you've gotten that particular uh, cold virus and uh, that virus coming back a little bit different, right? And if the virus didn't change at all, uh, you know, A, that would be surprising, but uh, B, it would probably just mean that it would take longer for your immunity to wane even further before that same strain could reinfect you. I see. So let's take a step back from talking about boosters uh, and talk about the vaccine uh, industry itself. Uh, you, you're a scientist, but you're also a, an investor in, in the um, uh, uh, pharma uh, universe. Um, you recently wrote in a piece that uh, the vaccine business has long been, I, I think I'm quoting you directly, has been a quiet and profitable game of kings. Um, why is vaccine that business the game of kings? I, I assume that means it's 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 managed by large firms rather than small firms. Explain to our listeners what that means. Sure. Uh, so it's I, I would argue a fairly mature business um, where uh, some big companies have gotten good at making large numbers of doses. It's the, the kind of uh, business where generally your products are sold at lower prices, but you have to make you know huge volumes, and so. Uh, the facilities that make these are larger. Um, you know, in, in the case of treating cancer with a pill, uh, the the amount of drug that you might make is modest enough that you know you can contract with uh, various contract manufacturers, and it doesn't take you know as as many people or as much uh, resources or land in order to make the necessary amount of uh, doses of that extremely high priced, low volume product. Vaccines. You know, requires some you know heavy industrial equipment. So you know, uh, it makes sense that bigger companies that you know have more experience with manufacturing that scale would eventually come to dominate. If some new company comes along once in a while that has a better technology, eventually it gets acquired by one of the the big companies, and so the products that people see uh, are exclusively you know sold by big pharma companies. Uh, and over the years, there have been a few of them. So it's not like there's you know, 10 big pharmas that are in vaccines. It's basically GSK, Sanofi, Merck, uh, and Pfizer. And there's a, a, a couple mid-level um, you know, players. And uh, if you think about respiratory viruses, which is what we're dealing with, um, as opposed to a lot of the pediatric vaccines, respiratory viruses, uh, like flu vaccines, are really you know, provided uh, primarily by Sanofi. So uh, Sanofi has not been a name that people you know, have uh, spoken about um, during this COVID pandemic, right? They picked uh, a horse in this race and it's been a slow horse. And I'm sure in hindsight, they're beating themselves up thinking like, oh, that was the wrong horse. Pfizer uh, you know, sells um, a, a couple of vaccines, but uh, one in particular, pneumococcal vaccine, uh, is for um, a, a bacterial infection. It's Prevnar. It's a big selling vaccine. Um, there are now a couple of smaller companies that are gunning for it to try to replace it. Uh, but Pfizer got into uh, COVID in a really big way with an early deal with this company, BioNTech, an mRNA company. And they just went all out to scale manufacturing and they they have one of the two dominant mRNA vaccines that, that are out there. Moderna is a new player. 
So Moderna is a, a, a small company that got big. Uh, you know, COVID really like put Moderna on the map in a really huge way. Um, it was a fairly big, small to mid cap biotech company. Uh, I mean, when it went public, it went public at a multi-billion dollar valuation. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's, if the pandemic hadn't happened, you know, Moderna would right now be focused on uh, cytomegalovirus. That doesn't quite roll off the tongue for most people. You know, people would not be talking about like, oh my God, thank God there's an mRNA vaccine coming for, you know, a cytomegalovirus. It's an important virus, um, you know, and, and it can cause uh, birth defects and problems uh, during pregnancy if a woman gets a CMV infection. But it's a different, you know, kind of uh, product. But it was always the kind of technology, Moderna knew it and its founders knew it, that should there ever be a pandemic, it would allow a rapid response. So COVID really upended the slow, stable, you know, sort of sleepy, but profitable world of vaccines and made Pfizer a respiratory vaccine company and made Moderna a new giant uh, player. And they sucked up a ton of talent from other companies like GSK and Merck and Sanofi that, you know, really don't have, um, you know, sort of advanced forces in the race just just yet. I, Merck and GSK arguably don't. Um, Sanofi does. They're in phase three with a protein-based uh, vaccine. Um, and another company that you know became big, uh, comparatively big, was Novavax. Um, they were able to raise uh, a bunch of money as well and hire a lot of people. Uh, and they are just now starting to uh, file for approval uh, in various parts of the world. So maybe we'll see their vaccine uh, on the market soon. So. Uh, if we do, it means that you will have uh, three new names uh, in the respiratory vaccine space, Moderna, Pfizer, and uh, Novavax, uh, where before, as far as the US was concerned, it was just Sanofi, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, does this mean that all of a sudden we're gonna see lots of vaccine startups and that it's a dynamic field? And the answer is not yet. Uh, the what the article you're referring to, um, you know, I, I wrote about this problem that we've only just tasted, uh, you know, the vaccine space that that segment of the biotech industry has only just tasted uh, startup culture, right? People left jobs that they might have been at uh, for years and joined a new company to work on an intense, fast-paced project and discovered what it's like to be charged with an important task and given you know tons of money. And, you know, will they do it again? Will they say that, you know what, mRNA was exactly the right kind of vaccine for ending the pandemic, but now that we're moving into the sort of peacetime market, the endemic market of annual booster shots, we really need to pivot to technologies that are going to be less painful and uncomfortable, don't cause chills. I mean, you know, mRNA shots are, are far less comfortable than uh, flu shots. Hey, we, we need to pivot to, you know, uh, protein-based uh, COVID vaccines. So let's flood into uh, other names. So I mentioned one of the companies I'm on the board of, Icosavax, right? And I point out that their technologies are in some ways advanced versions of what are otherwise conventional protein-based vaccines. And, uh, you know, a company like that can raise money in an IPO, but then it has to hire people. And so where are you going to hire them from? Right. You know, a lot of the people that were open to moving uh, from Sanofi already got poached by other companies, right? So you're trying to rip them out of what, like Moderna or Pfizer or Novavax or, or whatever, right? So 
Um, they're in the throes of scaling up vaccines and saving the world. And you have to inspire them to look ahead and realize like, yeah, but we need your dynamic, you know, uh, flexible mind and skills to now work on the next thing, the next wave uh, of, of vaccines. So it'll be a little while, I think, before the vaccine um, sector becomes dynamic and people start looking for the next cool thing that will improve upon the last one that we had. But I think it'll get there. So you, 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 you introduced a lot of interesting concepts there. Um, uh, one of them being that uh, uh, whereas uh, vaccines might have been, a, uh, uh, as you say, the, the realm of kings, the big players, um, and perhaps small marginal benefit, uh, marginal uh, profit, but um, you know, if you produce enough of it, you can make some money on, on vaccines. Uh, COVID seems to have changed everything. At the very least, uh, it made vaccines a you know, uh, dinner table conversation uh, for everyone on planet Earth. Um, yeah. you, you describe a term that you describe uh, as inverted capital dilemma. I think you touched on it in your, your most recent, your, your last answer in that you can throw lots and lots of money at a, uh, a technology, uh, but there's only so many people in that space. I, I'm reminded of the dot-com uh, universe, even here in Boston, uh, one uh, startup was hiring from another startup. There's, you know, there's only so many people who can code. Uh, it takes a while to learn how to code. Uh, and so they were just stealing yeah. each other's uh, employees. Is that what we're in the midst of right now? Well, um, I would say that that's a sign of a very healthy, vibrant ecosystem. You know, mm -hmm. uh, in, investors have to sell something to buy something. So companies are constantly talking you into investing in them. But of course, what that also means is you got to sell something. Like, what are you going to sell? Maybe you've got a whole you know, bunch of money uh, stuck in treasuries, in which case, okay, you're not selling anything that's particularly dynamic. But if you're invested in a bunch of other companies, you're trying to you know, pick uh, the, the ones that are better. You may say, but I love all my companies. Like, you're going to have to love me a little bit more if you're going to invest in, in me, right? That's essentially what entrepreneurs are saying. And I would argue that you know, uh, workers are capital. You know, uh, we even have a slide deck on, on the RACAP website where uh, we try to get um, the, the kinds of people that work in biotech companies to recognize that they are themselves investors. They are investing their time and expertise, and they should come to understand what they're being paid with. You know, uh, stock, how, do, how should they value stock and options? They don't think of themselves necessarily that way, not until they get later in their career. You know, but in this slide deck, we try to teach uh, you know, people that might ordinarily focus on like the, the quality of the work, the quality of the people and whatever, uh, and, and say, yes, but in addition to all that, also understand how equity works. If somebody says, I'm going to give you 50,000 shares, you should ask them what the denominator is. 50,000 doesn't mean anything, right. right? Not if there's 5 trillion shares. That's right. But that's not common knowledge, uh, you know, in the labor force, right? And so, uh, the labor force is a form of capital. You know, they flow like capital. And one of the things that I point out is, you know, that uh, that money is merely a surrogate for people. You give a company money in order for it to turn that money into a whole team that's working on a problem. And if you can't find the labor force, if it's not dynamic, if they're hesitant to leave their job, if they don't have a taste of startup culture and what it's like to leave one company and join another, then it can be like pushing on a string. You can throw money at it, but nothing happens, right? And so, uh, you know, what I hope will happen here is from a whole bunch of people having tasted what it was like 
to leave a pharma and join a Moderna or a BioNTech, you know, or a Novavax, you know, and all of a sudden see their stock options shoot up in value. What I would hope will happen is that uh, they start saying, I wonder if I can do that again, right? Now, does that mean that I just want them to be driven by money? No, that's never the healthiest motivation, but it helps. You know, I would like for them to also look up and say, wow, we transformed the world with this new technology. I wonder what other new technology is out there that I could transform the world with. You know, let me not be afraid to make that leap. You know, it shouldn't take a pandemic for me to leave my job and join another company. Like, let me do that proactively. I'm not scared to, you know, uh, take that new gig. So uh, we don't yet have this problem, I'd say, of startups poaching startups. Uh, you know, we, we're struggling, I think, uh, in the vaccine space to just get people that are at really big companies to join a startup. But it's starting and COVID helped prime the pump. Let's start um, again with the, before times, uh, before the COVID vaccine, we had big players uh, producing uh, vaccines. Now COVID sort of uh, shook the world up uh, and, and people are interested and curious. Um, you, you talked about um, mRNA uh, vaccines, which seem to be somewhat revolutionary. I, I don't know if you'd uh, agree with that characterization. Sure, what 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 are the what are the the main categories? You even differentiated um, uh, viruses that address uh, respiratory infections. Um, if it's too many to to, to uh, enumerate, you know, at a high level, how many different sort of flavors of vaccines? And can a can a firm that does mRNA also do uh, uh, a different kind of uh, attenuated virus? Or um, I'm throwing out terms. Yeah. So um, if you uh, you should think of each virus as a particular problem. Uh, and you should think of uh, the mRNA or virus like particle or recombinant protein or adenovirus, uh, adenoviral vectors, those are tools, right? And so uh, a company that has a particular tool, you know, adenoviral vector uh, can uh, apply its tool like a wrench to a whole range of problems. Um, mRNA is a particular tool, you know, call it a pair of pliers, and uh, it's being applied to a whole bunch of different uh, viruses. Now it can't do all kinds of pathogens. Um, the specifically the kinds of pathogens it can tackle are the ones that are uh, covered in proteins, and so mRNA can encode the sequence, the recipe for a, a particular protein. Uh, bacterial, possibly viral, certainly, and train the immune system to recognize that protein. But there are some bacteria that are covered in sugar molecules, particular types of sugar molecules, not literally table sugar, it's more right. complex sugars. Um, and uh, that's the kind of a vaccine that Pfizer sells for pneumococcal infections. It's called Prevnar. mRNA would not be able to do that, right? So, uh, I would say mRNA is an incredibly versatile technology, uh, you know, and um, Moderna is already showing that it's, you know, applying it to a whole lot of different um, viruses. Uh, the one limitation that has emerged uh, during COVID is it's, uh, it's what's called highly reactogenic. Um, it's immunogenic, meaning it, it generates an immune response, but it's also reactogenic which I guess you can think of as it generates a reaction from mm -hmm. you where you're like, oh God, that hurt, or yep. I'm really fatigued, or I'm suffering from the chills. Okay. Or, 
I would okay. be 36 hours of uh, flu-like symptoms. I, I would both on the second and the booster. I'm a Pfizer person uh, and it cost me two weekends. You know, it's exactly. a fair trade, but it, it was tough. Well, you know, and that's the thing, right? You know, if COVID actually does, you know, pose a real risk to you, then uh, it's better to lose a weekend for sure, you know, or, or high likelihood <laughs> of losing a weekend than, uh, you know, losing your life, yeah. you know, or even being hospitalized, you know, or suffering even moderate COVID, you know, for, for like two weeks or something like that. Um, but if you're younger uh, and you look at this vaccine and you're like, this is going to cost me a weekend, uh, you know, the high probability or I take my chances and odds are I'll be asymptomatic, maybe mildly symptomatic and a tiny, tiny chance that it's, you know, moderate. I can see how somebody might say, you know what, uh, I'm going to skip that booster with its high likelihood of knocking me out for the weekend and take my slim chances of, you know, suffering, uh, you know, something I'll regret. So mm -hmm. it's really important to make sure that people don't feel like they have to uh, trade uh, very much off at all to get the protection of a vaccine. And so there are more conventional protein-based vaccines. Um, so if you think of mRNA as the instructions for how to make a picture of the bad guy, then protein is basically like injecting the Polaroid of the bad guy directly. <laughs> in like no instructions needed. This is what the guy looks like. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, uh, you know, that uh, protein-based vaccines, you know, have been used um, for years and uh, a lot of different vaccines. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're fairly conventional. They are a little slower or a lot slower in some cases uh, to manufacture and scale up. Um, so they, they weren't great for a rapid pandemic response. But given that this virus is frankly not mutating that rapidly, uh, you've got plenty of lead time to make a protein-based uh, vaccine, you know, for just annual boosting. And since flu vaccines are protein-based, you can combine protein with uh, protein and just create a combination vaccine you know, that'll cover COVID and flu. Um, so uh, I expect that eventually we're going to have combination uh, COVID, flu, and possibly uh, uh, other viruses mixed in um, respiratory panel vaccines, as they're called. So there's pediatric panels where uh, you know people get a Tdap. Uh, tetanus, uh, diphtheria, and pertussis. Um, you know, they get that typically as adults once every 10 years. If you have a baby, they recommend that you get a booster, tell the grandparents, get a Tdap booster. Um, and so, you know, we actually have a lot of examples of vaccines being bundled, uh, you know, so that they can just be more conveniently administered. Um, there are attenuated virus vaccines as well. The, these would be versions of the bad guy. It's basically like taking a clone of the bad guy uh, kneecapping him and injecting him into your body and being like, he's going to try and like, you know, pull off some muggings in your body, but it'll be really minor. Your immune system will get a really good look at like what the actual bad guy looks like. Um, the trouble is that attenuated virus, uh, viral vaccines, um, you know, if you're immunocompromised, even a bad guy who's been kneecapped uh, can really do a number on you. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's a, a risk benefit that is uh, a little bit harder to, to thread. Um, and mRNA, mRNA doesn't come with that uh, baggage. Mm -hmm. Turns out mRNA comes with something else, this yeah. rare myocarditis risk that, that is emerging. Um, and, uh, you know, younger males in particular, you know, uh, have to be mindful of it. Um, it's still rare 
And even if you get it, you know, it, it can pass. It's, it's not, you know, uh, the worst thing in the world, but very, 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 very rarely, uh, yes, it could be extremely serious. Um, and of course the public reacts to that, uh, you know, uh, without a sense of the frequency of the risk, just the magnitude of it. And there's a sense of like, well, you told me vaccines are safe. It's like, ah, you know what? We have um, to go back to the, let's, let's uh, offer everybody the denominator. I to bring that's back right. You know, and it's like, technically you take risks every day. I mean, you eat McDonald's and you cross the road. I mean, just, but that's not a winning argument. You know, trying to tell people they're not doing the math right is, isn't quite right. Indeed, do we need to be stimulating people's immune systems that hard in order to boost them? Protein-based vaccines are less reactogenic. They don't rev you up as much. They boost what needs boosting. They remind your internal uh, you know, surveillance mechanisms. This Remember, this is what the bad guy looks like. But they don't like, you know, trigger military exercises you know, and war games uh, the way mRNA seems to. So to get down to brass tacks, when we're talking about COVID, um, you know, at a broad level, you're saying, look, we we shouldn't be surprised that we again lose a weekend to get the shot. And given that that cost and well-known cost, uh, the average man on the street may decide to skip it and therefore becomes effectively less effective as a, as a vaccine. So moving forward, we have to come up with alternatives. So your expectation is that boosters in the future, uh, I shouldn't plan which weekend I want to lose in 2022. Rather, I'll be getting a protein-based vaccine that will be effective, as effective as it needs to be, and I will want to get it because it won't cost me a weekend. That's the hope, certainly. we got to <laughs> keep working on that, and it is uh, extremely important. Now, we've gone from a phase where simply getting protection by any means was the most important thing, and now we've got to refine the product to where it's the kind of thing that a lot of people are going to want and trust uh, you know, during peacetime when there isn't quite that urgency of like, hit me with whatever, you know, I'm, I'm terrified of COVID. Um, I, I think that uh, it's possible that maybe somehow mRNA will be engineered to be less reactogenic. For example, kids now, we just got an approval of the Pfizer mRNA shot for kids aged five to 11. And when you look at the tolerability profile of that, it's better. You know, they're also giving a much lower dose to kids. Uh, and so your kids are getting some protection and it's better tolerated. Thank God, because if you've ever taken a kid to get a flu shot, <laughs> that is a really well-tolerated vaccine. <laughs> and the idea of taking kids for a repeat dose of, you know, mRNA that felt like what I got or what you got, Joe, like you will never get them to go with you. They'll kick and scream. You'll, I mean, you're going to have to do things to your kid that, you know, you'll lose sleep over. Yeah. Right. So uh, we definitely need vaccines that, that kids are going to you know, resist less and bundle it with flu because I only want to hit them with one needle. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about the um, um, sort of how you characterize the different um, types of vaccines and, and boosters. Uh, if I hear you right, the mRNA uh, type of vaccines are really effective at, uh, let's say, um, I don't call them shock troops, but uh, uh, fast reaction troops that uh, can be um, uh, designed uh, relatively quickly, a, a novel, uh, you know, um, COVID, God forbid, COVID-21 comes down the line, uh, our first uh, reaction is going to look into the bag, the tools called mRNA, and uh, develop something quickly. It may have some side effects, but we can get it fast. And then over time, perhaps protein-oriented or protein-based vaccines will be developed for boosters. I, I, am I reading that right, or, or does yeah, it matter I, what COVID-21 no, looks of, like? If you think of mRNA as being like in, in instructions, um, then uh, I would say that... Uh, 
you know, mRNA is basically like a, a bunch of like keychain drives, thumb drives that you quickly uh, manufacture and, you know, you upload the code for the image of the bad guy and you stick them into everybody and upload the instructions as opposed to having a bunch of photographic you know, printers, you know, that you have to like, you know, run and print out, you know, pictures and, and then you have to inject them into people's uh, bodies, right? So you're sort of kind of skipping a step. Um, and so in theory, you can make mRNA doses uh, maybe a, a few months faster than you could make a protein-based vaccine if you're starting with two fully operational facilities and you're given the sequence for the bad guy at the same time. Um, you know, I'd say that this time around, it was not just a couple month difference. You know, uh, the companies that should have been fast were slow. The companies that were fast were starting not from a fully operational facility, but, you know, from near bankruptcy, like Novavax. So they went through a lot of uh, growing pains, having to regrow from near bankruptcy. If you had caught that company a couple of years earlier, they would have owned their own manufacturing facility that was focused on making flu, and they would have been able to react more quickly. But they had just sold off that facility essentially to stave off bankruptcy, and then COVID hits, and they're forced to work purely through contract manufacturers. So bad luck for them, and that's going to cause you know, delays. Companies like GSK just decided not to get into the game of making vaccines. They merely made uh, one of their adjuvants, which is an immune stimulator that you sprinkle into a vaccine to rev up the immune system. They made it available to other people, but otherwise they didn't bother to make you know, any antigens of their own. I'd be curious you know, why, but the person who led uh, GSK's vaccine uh, efforts for many, many years, Monsef Slawi, he ran Operation Warp Drive. Warp speed, sorry. Uh, so he ran that. So mm -hmm. at least you sort of had like the GSK uh, vaccine leader running America's, uh, you know, vaccine um, sort of accelerator program, right? I, indirect GSK uh, contribution. Merck is a vaccine company. They bet on a couple of uh, less common, unusual vaccines. Um, if, if anybody actually really wants to get into the weeds of this, this is after all called hub wonk. So I take it that- We're gonna get wonky, all, okay. My, all, all your audience members just love getting in the weeds <laughs> of stuff. But if you go on racap.com, you'll see we've got a COVID section. And in the uh, COVID section, we have some high resolution mind maps of tons of different technologies. And it may still be that we have a version on there that shows like uh, a whole bunch of decommissioned uh, COVID vaccine programs. And you'll see way back when, like what we said about them. I wonder if we even have old versions of those maps up uh, where we point out like, this is probably not gonna work, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, and that's not fair. You can say that about just about any biotech thing, like it's probably not right. gonna work. It's, but right. a lot of these things were not surprises to us when they turned out not to work. Um, and uh, in, indeed they didn't. I, I would have liked to see some of the giants really put their expertise behind more you know, traditional technologies, just protein-based. And some of them got, uh, I feel, distracted with attenuated viruses and um, unusual viral vectors. Um, so uh, I, I feel like we'll be better for the next pandemic. People will realize like, yep, let's do mRNA. And uh, maybe by that point, we will have validated something like viral, virus-like particles, uh, VLP, protein-based vaccines. 
And those possibly can be made super quickly, like using you know, a, a Polaroid camera that like spits out an image really quickly. Uh, so they might be a little slower than mRNA, but maybe on the scale of like six weeks slower, not six months slower. So, so I want to, um, we, we're talking about COVID-19. This is the problem we know, and the, this is the epidemic we're in the middle of right now, or hopefully on the tail end of right now. Um, but perhaps I've got a vaccine on the brain in reading and preparing for our conversation. It amazes me uh, the power of vaccines that, that, that become so prominent. In, in my view, I'd rather get a vaccine to prevent a disease than a, a fantastic cure once I have the disease. Uh, one that popped up in my research was uh, you know, trials of, if you can believe, um, a triple negative breast cancer vaccine, uh, not just to uh, treat breast cancer, but to prevent women from getting breast cancer. Share with our listeners some of the most exciting, uh, let's say, breakthroughs or the potential, broadly speaking, of vaccines. Can can All a right. vaccine in theory cure anything? All right. So <laughs> the word vaccine uh, is uh, the same between cancer vaccine and like COVID vaccine. But what this technology is being asked to do is so radically different that uh, it's uh, it sparks a lot of um, false hope. Um, asking, uh, it, basically a vaccine triggers the immune system to learn to recognize something, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the immune system is already like looking out, out for pathogens and we've evolved for many years, it, you know, millions of years, right? Animals have got immune systems. When there's something that is clearly not you, you know, a <laughs> virus, entering your body, it's not hard to be like, that is clearly not me, let's attack it. But cancer, that's you. That's like a bad you, right? Like the dark, you know, you've a clone of you has gone to the dark side in some subtle ways. It looks very much like you, but it's a certain like squint of the eye. You're like, I don't think that's, you know, right. a good version of me. And the immune system has a hard time recognizing that. And what's worse is that these, you know, uh, you know, cells that have gone to the dark side, they've got some mad skills at evading the immune system. In fact, there's skills that viruses have learned to co-opt and do something similar. They hide from the immune system. Um, the very fact that the cancer even emerged suggests your immune system failed to see it. And so, uh, you know, you, you don't have that bar to jump over in the case of COVID. Like your immune system doesn't know what COVID looks like because it hasn't seen it yet. The moment you show it what COVID looks like, your immune system's like, I got it from here, I'm good. But in the case of cancer, your immune system has seen it and now it can no longer do anything about it. So the idea of treating somebody with cancer, with a cancer vaccine that will get the immune system to like do what it's clearly been bad at is a really high hurdle. Companies are working on it. There were glimmers of some hope. We've got a cancer vaccine for prostate cancer called Provenge that looks like it tacks on four months of uh, extra life. You know, that really sparked interest in cancer vaccines. Um, but we've since seen tons of vaccines fail to live up to their expe the expectations people had, all kinds, mRNA vaccines, you name it. So uh, the idea of showing the immune system a picture of what the cancer looks like and being like, no, 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 how about this picture? What about this? What about if I use this like really cool uh, Instagram filter? Like now will it work? Like we're trying all sorts of stuff and we just can't get the immune system to simply react to that picture and go kill the bad guy. 
We've got other technologies. We've got antibody drug conjugates, for example, which is like, all right, all right, immune system. You cannot seem to manufacture an antibody to go after the uh, you know, cancer. We'll just do it for you. We've got these giant reactors. We are making a monoclonal antibody. We're attaching a toxic payload to it. And we're going to send that into, your, into the body like a homing missile. And it will simply find those cancers and it will you know, kill them with the, the toxin, right? So you know, that's a little bit like the monoclonal antibodies that Regeneron and Eli Lilly have made for COVID. If you can't seem to mount a strong immune uh, response to a vaccine yourself because you're immune compromised, all right, well, we got you. You know, we basically did that whole immune reaction to a vaccine thing outside the body in a big vat, and we'll just stick the end product in you, the antibody, right? So in a sense, that's what we've been. We can't get the immune system. It's almost like everybody's immune compromised when it comes to cancer, and we have to just inject the antibodies themselves, right? And the trouble is that uh, these cancers, they mutate, mm -hmm. and, you know, they find ways of evading the antibodies. And you, what you, you hope is that you can somehow get the immune system to kick in and, you know, recognize a lot of different features of the cancer and basically make it so that the cancer can't change its appearance that much because the immune system is just all over it. But again, it, maybe the immune system once was able to do that. The very fact that the cancer emerged suggests it lost the ability to do it. So um, this, our conversation is about the exciting, um, you know, uh, potential for vaccines to transform medicine in some some way. Uh, and you said perhaps maybe the the limiting constraint is is, is talent or, or expertise or, or just numbers of people who are, are good in this space. Interestingly enough, not not in the cancer vaccine space. That has mm -hmm. not been a game of kings. That has been, you know, uh, basically the uh, this um, you know fairly large um, mind map that that we've got. Of lots of companies, you know, at, at this point, you know, probably 60 companies uh, at least over the history of the industry that have tried to develop cancer vaccines of one kind or another. And very rarely have you seen big companies venture into it because with the, again, with the exception of this one prostate cancer vaccine, nothing has worked. And so the pharma companies look at that and be like, I don't think we're missing out on anything here. Like, we're good. <laughs> You know, right. we'll catch you if one of you has a breakthrough. So it has been this like, you know, zone, this like graveyard uh, um, where occasionally somebody's like, no, I think I can do this. They're like, how about this? And, mm -hmm. you know, you, if they find some investors that are like, yeah, I think this is the one, fine. They're able to run the study and then they fail, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just failure and failure and failure. That makes it so exciting. <laughs> uh, for someone like you, because if you but, get it right, if you know you, you come up, uh, uh, you, you get your lottery ticket, right? I mean, it, it's not even so much, you know, from the investment standpoint. It's just like you root for the underdog, mm -hmm. you know. Like the fact that we had that one prostate cancer vaccine makes you think, like, but it's possible, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, you kind of hope that someday we have a breakthrough. You know, it's kind of like Alzheimer's, right? Um, mm -hmm. Adjahelm has uh, is in the news. The Biogen Alzheimer's. We did drug. we did a show on Adjahelm, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, indeed, the, we do need some bigger studies to, you know, convincingly uh, prove whether or not this drug and other drugs like it work. But there's a growing, you know, preponderance of evidence that says they're doing something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, 
it's so hard to convey to somebody that hasn't like lived with this space for 20 years. And that's not even that long a time. There are people who've lived with, with the, uh, this area for a lot longer than that. You know, for decades, there have been people that said, I know, let's just target this protein called A-beta. That's the key to, you know, treating Alzheimer's. And it's just been failure after failure after failure. I mean, it, it was like this smug thing. You can say like, oh man, they're so dumb. I can't believe they're funding yet another trial. Like this is the problem with biotech. People waste money doing stuff that'll never work. I'm so much smarter than them. You know, if it were up to me, I'd never run trials. In that. And then God damn it, a trial works. Like what? And all of a sudden you have to realize, you, you recognize like, oh my God, what if these diehards that kept at it, that were laughed at, you know, that everybody talked about them as like, they're crazy. What if they were right? And then you feel bad, like, geez, you know, I, I was, you know, I doubted them and they were right along. They nurtured this flame, this flame of possibility. They didn't give up in the face of so much adversity. They were like, no, I really think that trial was flawed. That antibody wasn't quite right. I still think this could work. And you get this signal that maybe they've been right. That's so exciting, right? It's, I'm not into baseball, but it would be like watching one of the worst baseball teams in the league make it you know, to the World Series. Well, we were here in 2004, weren't we? And uh, see, I don't know what that means. All right, you know, well, but, but yeah, I guess only the Red is, Sox started there. Years. That, that's all. That's yes, all. you're right. You're right. That, sorry, I do know that. My dad's a diehard uh, Red Sox fan. So yes, I just assume the Red Sox are like a winning team, but it wasn't always so. No. So, you know, uh, when you get that signal, all it is is your team, the Red Sox, they made it to the World Series. That's where Adrahelm is, the World Series, but they haven't won. The point is, it's amazing that they even got there. The fact that the FDA acknowledged after so many failures, they're like, we think there's something there. And we think that it's so special in Alzheimer's of all fields, like a place where it's so hard to inspire anyone to believe that there's any hope that, you know what, let's actually kick this one into the market. Let's let patients, you know, get it if they want. Well, the trouble is, until you've won the World Series, Insurance plans, doctors and patients don't really feel like taking it. And that's what you're discovering that, you know, it's not enough to have made it into the Alzheimer's World Series. Uh, you know, we're all waiting to see who actually wins. But it's quite something because essentially Alzheimer's has been a game where uh, amazingly every single team fails the playoffs. I don't know how that's possible, but if you could imagine everybody losing the playoffs and nobody getting to the World Series, that's what it's been like for decades in that space. Right? So, so for, for the benefit of our, our listeners, um, again, I'm going to shift this conversation just to, to you know, local or current events. Um, we're in Boston, you know, slash Cambridge, Athens of America. There's lots of smart people working in this space. You only have to go across the Longfellow. I actually, you know, walk past the head of Moderna every morning uh, when he's on his way to work. I'm coming back for my run. So this is real. It's, uh, you know, yeah, it's you can, from Paige right here. on for me. That's right. You know, uh, he's on uh, on the hill. Um, uh, what can let's say policymakers in uh, listening to this conversation who are inspired by your inspiration, uh, they want to make uh, let's say uh, Boston, Cambridge into the Silicon Valley of, uh, if not pharma, perhaps this new uh, world of um, uh, vaccines. 
what could policymakers do to perhaps get more teams trying to get into the World Series and ultimately solve these what seem like intractable problems of medicine that uh, you know eventually we'll, we'll we'll figure it out. So um, you know it's it's interesting, right? You have policymakers that think locally about their local economic interests, um, and those would be you know our mayors and our governors, uh, you know, and local representatives. Um, and they are very pro biotech, you know, they understand that, you know, biotech and even pharma, like this, these are gleaming jewels of creativity in, in, uh, the Boston area in Cambridge area. Um, and then you have national leaders and, you know, we have some local, uh, you know, people that in theory understand that, you know, Boston's awesome at this, and it's it's an important industry uh, and should be proud of it. But um, for the most part, uh, all of the Democrats that you know Massachusetts has sent to Congress um, have just voted for something that is highly toxic. There's actually there's one there's one exceptional freshman uh, you know Democratic member of, uh, in the House. Um, Jake Auchincloss, he actually comes from a healthcare biotech uh, family. Uh, and um, I've never met anybody like him who truly uh, cares to understand, like understand how investment in R&D works and wants to understand this industry and uh, which incentives would cause what behavior. Uh, so um, I would basically say that uh, we have one member of Congress, from what I can tell, uh, that is really trying to, you know, achieve reforms that will preserve innovation, solve affordability from Massachusetts. That's Jake Oshinkoss. And then you've got one over from the San Diego area, Scott Peters, that uh, has uh, done a lot of work. But that's, you know, that's San Diego. But I'm kind of surprised. I would have thought that Massachusetts would have sent, you know, Democrats uh, that would have actually conveyed the value of innovation, they would have hammered pharma for milking old drugs for profits. They would have been like, dude, that's rent-seeking. That's no good. We're, we're going to shut that down. We're going to make sure all old drugs go generic without undue delay and save money. And we're going to you know, apply those savings towards lowering out-of-pocket costs for people so they can properly afford medicine. But you know, we've got... Uh, local people that should be proud of, uh, you know, the kind of work that we do around here that went to Congress and vociferously advocated for, you know, the kinds of price control measures that would shut all this down. So it's a little bit demoralizing, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know uh, if, how you guys do politics on, on your podcast, Joe, but- We're not, nonpartisan. I, and I'm not gonna start now, but I have well, a lot to the, say. The is, it's a really cool question. And so, uh, I would suggest uh, that you know you consider talking to Jake Auchincloss, you know, just to get a sense for what is it like, you know, uh, for somebody who's homegrown, comes from kind of a biotech uh, healthcare family, is on the inside of the Democratic Party, is local, and you know, is uh, trying to advocate for preserving uh, innovation within a party that uh, otherwise just you know, keeps uh, banging the drum on how evil pharma is. Well, that's, that's good news. All right, we're getting close to the time of uh, end of our uh, 
uh, time together. Um, so I want to give our listeners a chance to um, read more about your work, either your um, your thought pieces or some of the cool RA Capital um, uh, slide decks that you offer uh, to make everyone a little smarter. I'm sure there's some STEM yeah. STEM graduates who want to want to get into this field, perhaps are or, or perhaps there, there's two places people can go. So uh, there, there's two places people can go, maybe three, but uh, they can go to recap.com and go under the knowledge section and they will find some pretty uh, you know, detailed and insightful slide decks there. Um, and they can go to the website of a nonprofit organization that I was involved in starting called No Patient Left Behind. So nopatientleftbehind.org. And uh, that organization does advocate for constructive healthcare reforms, like solving affordability by lowering out-of-pocket costs uh, and ensuring that society gets value from all the branded uh, drugs that it pays for um, by making sure that they all go generic without undue delay. But you know, for an appropriate length of time, which I would say is you know the typical 13, 14 years that that drugs are branded, leave market-based pricing alone, right? Mm -hmm. So I explain market-based pricing in a slide deck. Uh, we end up creating an animation that you can find linked on that website. Uh, it's basically like a three-minute animation version of my book. Because, uh, you know, Joe, nobody reads books. So we have podcasts. <laughs> you write a book in order to have the credibility to launch a slide deck mm -hmm. uh, and then maybe turn that slide deck into a three-minute animation. And just maybe then people will watch it and be like, oh, okay, I, I sort of get your idea. So I would invite people to go to nopatientleftbehind.org, really, and that's where they'll find uh, sets of uh, slide deck explainers and animations that, uh, honestly, if you really want to understand about healthcare, drugs, drug pricing, um, how investing works, how investors make investment decisions, like this will uh, be like an MBA course, like, you know, laid it all out there. Um, and uh, if only you know, our policymakers in Washington. Right. We'll send it to our, our delegation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or maybe we just need all voters to go through some right. slide decks. I, I don't know. Right. We need to uh, say, uh, 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 well, that's, that's great advice. Uh, I hope we've helped to uh, make our listeners a little bit, a little bit smarter. And I think you helped inspire um, uh, this, uh, them to get excited about this space and the potential for, for medicine. And there's people out there like you swinging for the fences and, and hoping to to uh, win the World Series. So thank you very much for your time today, Peter. It's, it's, uh, I think you've uh, informed, but also inspired our listeners today. Well, uh, thanks for uh, you know, making this conversation possible, Joe. And I look forward to checking in with you again in a year. Uh, hopefully we're not talking about the Omega variant. <laughs> I do too. Thank you very much, Peter. This has been another episode of Hubwonk a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to help us find and reach more listeners, it would help us if you would offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for future episode topics, you're welcome to reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.